Welcome to Around the Outside, the podcast for the Formula One fanatic with me, Chris Moss and Jake Peach. Thank you for stopping by and listening to the podcast. Don't forget, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss a new episode. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search Around the Outside podcast on Facebook and we're at ATO podcast underscore on Twitter and Instagram. In this episode, as we are mid-season here on the podcast, we welcome an exciting guest for a special feature episode. Today's guest will be F1 commentator and analyst Ben Edwards. But first, we will be taking a look back on a very crazy Hungarian Grand Prix thanks to a lap one incident from the Mercedes of Valtteri Bottas, which instantly changed the whole course of the race, but did it change the championship standings? Well, what a race we witnessed before the halfway point of the F1 season um, around the Hungarians. So much to digest, Chris. It was, for the neutral fans, an absolute dream race. We had chaos, carnage, and we had a new winner of a Grand Prix. Chaos right from the start into Turn 1 on a very sort of slippery track that had just been... Uh, had some rain before the start of the session, completely changed everything. No one knew what tyre to be on, how early to break. Uh, Bottas certainly didn't. Carnage, chaos, confusion. I mean, why why can't we have this every week? I mean, two fantastic Grand Prix in a row, absolute carnage throughout them both. And, you know, a bit like what we had in Monza last year, we've got a brand new race winner from you know, something that we never thought was going to happen. I mean, wow, what a race. What a race. And, you know, Ocon, who ended up being a victor at the end of this Grand Prix, I mean, he has a huge, huge piece of gratitude for Fernando Alonso in that because Alpine played an amazing team game. Yeah, it was, uh, it was um, well, uh, a great battle from... Alonso with Hamilton later on in the race because essentially Alonso held off a charge from Hamilton that kind of stopped him from winning the race even though Mercedes had a lot more pace but to start off at the beginning of the Grand Prix essentially it was kind of the normal grid you'd expect for the Hungaroring we had Max and Lewis still going at it together Um, Lewis on pole Max got a much better start and down into turn one everything seemed fairly normal until Bottas couldn't stop his car went straight into the back of uh, Lando Norris which then caused a massive chain reaction to crash into pretty much everyone on the grid we had um, Lando Norris going into Verstappen Perez was affected by it we also had Stroll locking up and going into Charles Leclerc into turn one absolute carnage damage everywhere Daniel Ricardo got uh, hit as well and then out of all of that sort of chaos that went on at turn one we had Ocon and Vettel out in the lead and of course then there was a red flag but then when the race began again there was a really strange moment where Hamilton was kind of in the mix but he decided he was going to be the only car that didn't pit for slick tyres like the rest of the field and I think it's one of the strangest things I've ever seen, apart from the US, USA race in 2005, not even one car started on the grid under the red lights, but this was one car yeah. on the grid. This, um, I mean, Twitter went crazy for it. Um, a lot of people saying, a bit like the F1 game when everybody disconnects from a, a lobby, it, just one car left. It's very much how it looked. Um, and, you know, we, we talk about being one of the worst races, 2005 the American Grand Prix. But this is nowhere near that level. This was crazy for a complete different reason. Um, It's almost funny levels of crazy. Um, You know, hats off to Mercedes for, I mean, not picking the correct strategy, but giving us a race that we wanted to watch. And, you know, seeing Lewis trying to get through the grid, trying to make up positions. I mean... We saw overtaking at a track where traditionally overtaking isn't really going to happen. Um, you know, got to feel a little sorry for Max. I mean, two races in a row where he's not really had or done much wrong. Um, and, you know, he's come away from a possible chance of 52 points getting two points. Um 
And of but course, again, he, he he was racing essentially after the incident where Lando Norris hit into his car caused by the Constantina effect of Bottas, um, was racing with half a car because his whole barge board was gone on the left-hand side of his car, um, which essentially is a massive key part of modern-day Formula 1 cars. It directs the airflow around the whole around the whole car right to the rear, the rear wing, gives the car the downforce it needs to go fast. And without half of that, without missing, essentially he was, well, a sitting duck around everyone else and was battling with Mick Schumacher at Haas. That's the kind of pace that, that Red Bull and Max were, were going with at that moment because of the incident. I mean, the disappointing thing for Haas is the fact that Red Bull with half a car still beat them. <laughs> um, uh, but, yeah. you know... Uh, not, it wasn't just Red Bull that had an absolute torrid Grand Prix. I mean, McLaren, so, so positive. Lando up there with, you know, raw pace as well. Um, obviously, his car getting eliminated from uh, the shunt from Bottas. But Danny Ricciardo also got collected and his car was also pretty badly damaged. And obviously ending up finishing, I believe he got 10th in the end uh, due to Sebastian Vettel, um, which we'll bring, on, we'll, we'll bring back later on. Um, but ended up, I think, finishing in 10th. But yeah, a really, really unfortunate showing for McLaren. And I think Ferrari ended up overtaking them in the constructors um, due to them having Carlos Sainz in, in the Great points. performance, yeah. Uh, so so out of all of this, well, there is no other word for it, chaos, calamity that went on on the first lap. It really threw things up in the air, which we then found Esteban Ocon and Sebastian Vettel up near the front and nearly George Russell because when he was in the pits pitting for sick tyres he asked his engineer whether he could pass everyone in the pit lane and not have to queue so he did and he tried but then race control like um, no George I think you've got to give back your places for a second uh, there that's 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 called cheating you can't just overtake the field like that um, but then we had um, Nicholas Latifi genuinely up in third place which he wasn't going to stay there for very long but uh, you know it was crazy to see Latifi that far up the grid as well but yes then Vettel and Ocon were in control of the race uh, right up until the end Vettel gave him a, a really big fight but then uh, Ocon had the composure to bring home his first ever Grand Prix win the first I think the first win for a French driver in a French car with a French engine for the first time since Prost in sort of the mid 80s. So it's been that long since sort of French success came to a team. But yeah, let's talk about Vettel because he did put up a good fight and there was a, a key period where Vettel had his his pit stop, came into the pits and had a bit of trouble selecting first gear to get down uh, into his pit box correctly and into the pit lane. He then came out uh, of the pits pretty much neck and neck with Ocon had that one chance while whilst the tyres were uh, at their best and Ocon was most uh, vulnerable but couldn't quite pull it off and then it was pretty much as you were to the end of the race um, so it was it was quite a battle for Vettel but then he picked up second what we thought was going to be Aston Martin's equal best result of the season after Baku but unfortunately didn't turn out to be that way after the race no, um, obviously something Sebastian Vettel's had previously in his career and Lewis Hamilton's had the exact same. Um, obviously, you've got to have a minimum amount of fuel to take out at the end of the Grand Prix. Um, Seb even stopped before he even got back to Park Ferme um, and yeah, still didn't have enough fuel. Team did try and appeal it um, because they managed to extract even more fuel out, but they had to take body parts off, which you're not allowed to do. Um, so... Yeah, uh, unfortunately, Seb did get disqualified from a very strong second place. Very disappointing, but hopefully it is a sign of things to come for the team. Um, obviously, have been on the back foot quite a bit this season, but, you know, they've had a lot of strong races. They got, say, fifth place or sixth place in Monaco. They got second place in Baku. So it is looking more positive um, than, say, at the beginning part of the season. And Seb, Seb seems to be enjoying himself again, which, you know, we, we say pretty much every week now, he looks like he's enjoying himself. And I think, you know, even though he didn't cross the line first and say his second place didn't stay, I think he was very happy after that race. He was back racing at the front, which is what he wants to do. Yeah. And, and talking about you can't take all the engine covers off and that, that was a change in the rules where, you know, they were being quite strict on any 
tampering with the car. It's been like that for for quite a while. But um, essentially, the engineers, as much as they were trying to extract um, a fuel sample for for Vettel's car after the race, um, they couldn't do so. The problem was uh, the rules mandate. They say that um, after a Grand Prix, a car must have one liter of fuel left in the tank to extract for the FIA to basically scrutineer and check that the fuel is of the correct mixture it's it's you know it's it's the same as every other car and there hasn't been any tampering with that kind of aspect and improving the efficiency of the engine or giving it more power because of the sort of composition of the fuel um, and there was only 0.3 liters that could be extracted from the car however Aston Martin say you know if they could have taken the race covers off and all of that like they did in, in previous seasons and in old days they would have been able to extract enough fuel to pass the test if you like and get the one liter required but um essentially in kind of where we are now in the regulations in this season of f1 um the fuel has to be extracted via a pump uh, only a pump out of the tank um and that's the only way to do it if you can't get one liter of fuel out that way then unfortunately the rules say you get disqualified which it's probably they feel really hard done by because they were probably at that point were feeling well, you know, Stroll's crashed out, but we got Vettel in second. That that's okay for the constructors, but it seemed really harsh for the effort of, of Vettel, which, as you said, was through no fault of his own. Yeah, I mean, it is gutting, and I'm sure he is very disappointed. But you know, the rules are the rules. I mean, he's been caught out before when he was back at Red Bull. Say, like I said, Lewis Hamilton's been caught out uh, in previous years as well. Um. So, you know, it's something that, you know, it does happen. Um, don't know why it happened, uh, why why they had that little fuel left in the car. It's definitely something for them to look into as to why. But, you know, it is what it is. And they now just need to have a break, recompose themselves. And, you know, Seb is pretty good at Spa. Um, hopefully they can they can get back some, some points when, when we return from the summer break. What other performances impressed you during the Hungaroring race, Chris? Because, of course, it was all thrown up, but there were still some great drives. We were talking about Hamilton there coming back through the field. Um, he was trying to do the good old strategy that Mercedes seemed to do now and go for that extra stop and be on fresher tyres for then Hamilton to storm through the field. But then he came up against Alonso and it kind of well, changed the story a little bit. Yeah, and, you know, the driver that got voted driver of the day, Fernando Alonso, very much was one of the standouts and you know we will speak to Ben Edwards later and try and get his point of view as to what he thought of uh, the battle between Lewis and Fernando but Fernando very much looked like his old self he's, he's taken a bit of time to get back into the swing of things with racing but he looked feisty he looked like his old self and I mean not many people can hold Lewis Hamilton off in a car really that's a lot slower than a Mercedes but Fernando did it and he did it for quite a few laps and, you know, arguably got his teammate a race win because of it. Yeah, because, well, I mean, the, the gap that Hamilton closed up by uh, in in this period of what the, the lap or two that he had to do to try and catch up to Vettel and then obviously Ocon, um, he closed like four seconds in a lap. It was just ridiculous, the pace that he was going at. So, of course, yeah, he probably would have gone to win the race in some creating some crazy move and, and pulled it off. But yeah, Alonso effectively holding off Lewis enough so that Ocon and Vettel had enough of a gap to uh, pick up first and second place. And it was quite funny after the race because Alonso was was kind of reacting to that battle he had with Lewis and um, <laughs> says, oh, you think, think he thought it was pretty easy for Lewis to get past and I don't know why it took him so long. So, um, you know, rubbing salt in the wound a little bit. But they have they have a lot of respect for each other, Hamilton and Alonso. Of course, some fractious relationships in the past when they were both at McLaren and other Especially other at Hungary. Especially at Hungary, yeah, as we all know about the uh the pit stop in qualifying coming into the box there. But um no, it was uh, it was great to see that again. And um, as Ted Kravitz was saying on Sky Sports, uh, a battle that we might have wanted to see maybe a decade earlier. Um, yeah, for sure. But it's still good to see either or. Um, but also, like say, so a driver we we don't tend to mention all that much. Nicholas Latifi also, you know, with George Russell, mm. both Williams scoring points, double points finish. Yeah, how can we forget? You know, and you know Latifi finishing ahead was well ahead of George Russell in the race. Um, and yeah, you end up finishing a P7. 
George ended up getting P8. And, you know, it's his first ever points finish. Obviously, George did get one with Mercedes back in Sakia last year. But both of them getting their first ever points finishes for Williams. But this is a big result for Williams, like, over the context. Because, you know, as we said, George was in the lead at some point but gave the positions back. But Nicholas Latifi was in a legitimate third place, you know, and he got passed slowly and slowly, but he never looked like he was ever going to fall out of the points and neither did George. And for a Williams team where, you know, over the past couple of seasons where they've had such poor luck, you know, being in 11th place a handful of times, you know, George looking like he's going to get the points and then something happening, they finally got the luck they needed to get them points, you know. And I said at the start of the season that I think Williams are going to finish ahead of Haas. I think that's very much going to be the case now. Yeah, definitely seems like that. And you can, and you, probably a lot of people would say after this after this race, well, oh, they finished where they did because so many drivers crashed out. But in, in retrospect, if you look at the race, the first race in Austria, Williams had with the pace on, on merit they were kind of up there and they they have come so far it's quite an achievement to see where they've come and the progress they've made and um, they'll be very encouraged I'm sure going into the second half of the season but also next year absolutely and you know the thing that a lot of people took notice of with um, George Russell in particular in the race he was saying prioritise Nicky he, he's the focus even though George was in the points as well George wanted the maximum amount of points the team could get. And that is very selfless. It's something you don't normally see in Formula 1 because every driver is very much in for themselves. Um, but also when they crossed the line and they did the interviews at the end, George was, George had genuine tears because he's been in that team for three years. He's worked so hard, come so close so many times, but he's finally got what he wanted. He finally got points in a Williams. And, you know, that meant a lot. And I think everybody, whether you're a Lewis fan, a Max fan, a Lando fan, I think no matter what kind of F1 fan you are, that is a moment that you will appreciate and cherish because that just shows you no matter where what team you're in, where you end up going in your career, little moments like this make your career worth it. And it just shows how hard Latifi's been expecting because you would have thought that Russell would finish ahead of Latifi. Um, but it just shows how far he's come within the team as well. And people say, oh, he's just a pay driver and brings money to the team. Yes, he does. But he's also shown improvement himself there as well. So, yeah, great performance for Williams. So, yeah, really a crazy chaotic race. Um, one that Red Bull will want to put behind them again, unfortunately, after Silverstone as well. Um, but, yeah, we, uh, we're very excited to see how the second half of the season pans out, really, and um, see what will happen. Yeah, and obviously- uh, f- final nail in the coffin for the Red Bull team. Before the Grand Prix, they were ahead in both championships. Unfortunately, due to the Grand Prix and the collision with Bottas hitting, and I mean, it was a very, very um, fortuitous hit, but he did end up getting both Red Bulls in one hit. And um, in turn, Mercedes now lead both championships with Lewis Hamilton taking the Drivers' Championship by, I think it's eight points, something like that. Uh, and Mercedes, I believe, are four points ahead in the constructors. Which no one would have ever seen. If Bottas was playing like a martial arts game, we've got like a double combo score for that. I think it was absolutely brilliant. I reckon Toto Wolff was in his ear just like at the start. Like, okay, put, put it this way. If you want to keep your seat, Bottas, you've got to take them both I mean, Bottas, <laughs> Bottas, I mean, I'm pretty sure we, we've said like there's going to be collisions and whatnot. Bottas went next level and the fact he got both of them in one go is impressive that takes some skill Mm. skill but yeah no that was definitely not premeditated in any way shape or form because there's no way he was ever gonna think about getting both of them in one corner it was just pure luck that it worked in mercedes favor that way i mean it's bad luck for sure for red bull um but i mean look at look a couple of weeks ago you know before silverstone we were thinking Red Bull were flying away with it and in space of two races. And we said it was only two races that Mercedes would need to catch up and Mercedes are back ahead. And, you know, we're not even, we've still got 12 races to go. We've only had 11. This season is very much hotting up and it, for, for the neutral fan, 
it is one to watch and you know one that's going to live in the memory for a very long time can all change so so quickly so yeah we're excited to see uh, what the rest of the season has in store and one man who also knows how quickly things can change over commentating a number of seasons in his career is Ben Edwards our guest on the podcast this week let's catch up with what we had to talk to him about uh, earlier on the week here on the podcast Well, we're halfway through the season, so I thought it would be a time for a really exciting guest here on the podcast on Around the Outside. We welcome Formula One commentator and analyst to Around the Outside, Ben Edwards. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks, guys. Yeah, no, nice to be with you. Thanks so much for giving up some of your time. Um, so, I mean, there's so much to discuss after, uh, you know, such a long and successful career behind the mic for you. Um, how did commentary all start for you? Where, where did it begin? Oh, a long time ago now. Um, I, I used to work at Brands Hatch as a racing instructor, and I started uh, helping out the commentator there with some knowledge about some of the series of racing that I had uh, been involved in. And he was the one, Brian Jones, who encouraged me. He said, actually, you're quite good at this talking bit, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he stuck me out at Westfield uh, uh, to do the commentary box there. And so that was how I sort of began. It was It was late 80s, early 90s that I started doing that uh, at track. So I, I commentated a bit at Brands Hatch and then at Snetterton and a few other places. And then the TV commentary really, really sort of started early 90s. Um, first began 1991, really, uh, with Eurosport. Um, and then I became more regular in the mid 90s with Eurosport. So obviously, being at Brands Hatch, did you have a career as a racing driver? Did you race in any series? Yeah, yeah. I, well, I tried to make a career. I didn't quite make a career. Uh, yeah, no, I started out as a Formula Ford mechanic and then um, started doing some racing myself in Formula Ford, um, bits and pieces, uh, didn't have much budget. And then I was I was lucky enough to raise a bit of sponsorship and do something that was then called Formula First, which was um, a similar to Formula Ford, a basic single-seater championship, uh, which I won. So I thought, oh, goody, um, I can make it as a professional driver. Didn't quite happen. Um <laughs> And then I raced something called Formula Vauxhall Lotus at the time, which was a bit like Formula Renault. Or, um, and that was okay, but I didn't get the achievements I hoped to achieve. And um, it was while I was doing that that I was starting to do more commentary and mm. the commentating was going well. The racing wasn't going quite so well. I was struggling to raise money. And that's when I made the shift. Mm. And, and that's what we hear a lot of the time now with, with racing drivers these days. You hear a lot of paid drivers and it's all about getting the funding and the backing, even at those lower levels. Was that kind of the same thing back in those days as well? Was it's it more difficult? It's always been the same. Yeah. yeah, funding motor racing is never easy. And although in those days, at least you could start at a lower level on the humble money. Mm. Um, and then as you started to climb up the ladder, it got more and more expensive, clearly. I think nowadays it's even harder to start, to be honest. I think it's very difficult sometimes for people to even get going. Mm. Um, but yeah, that, that was the story. And it's always been a story in motor racing is that it's an expensive sport. Mm. And tell me about so tell me about the journey that kind of got you to commentate into Formula One, because before getting to Formula One and commentating for BBC and Channel Four and, and things like that, you did loads of other series in, in other countries, in the US as well. And that must have been such a, a crazy experience to go from one series to another and just taking it all in from going from humble beginnings at Brands Hatch. Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. And I mean, um, when I started doing Eurosport in the late or oh, the early 90s and then I amazingly I became a bit more regular for them in sort of 93, 94. And then they offered me the, the Formula One gig for them for 95, 96. So I commentated with John Watson. So I did two years at quite a young age of Formula One. Mm. Um, and it was a brilliant experience and I loved it. But then Eurosport lost the rights. And that's when they uh, asked me to do uh, Champ Car, as it was in those days, IndyCar, as it's called now. And that was also a wonderful opportunity. I mean, I really enjoyed that time. Um, and I commentated on... Champ Car 97 through to 2001. Um, and then, yeah, I, I sort of, I wanted to build up what I was trying to do in the UK as well. Um, and it was around that time, 2002, that I started doing British touring cars. Mm. Um, and I was also doing World Championship Speedway and a mix of things, um, mm. which was fun. I, I, you know, I really enjoyed doing lots of different stuff. Um, but I did touring cars then for a decade before I then got that shot at rejoining the BBC or joining the BBC and and doing Mm. Formula One so and in that time I did some amazing stuff A1GP was was a a fabulous uh, series uh, Super League Formula 
GT World Championship. I mean, uh, you know, I did uh, some fascinating stuff. Mm. And the A One GP series was was quite popular for a long time, wasn't it? But for for some reason, it kind of just sort of fell off the face of the earth. And it was kind of the series where rather than teams driving, sorry, rather than drivers driving for teams, they drove for their countries, which was a kind of yeah. new concept we'd never had before. Yeah, they drove for their nations. That's right, and the cars were all the same, and it and it worked very well. Um, sadly, there was some. Yeah, I think it could have worked. I think it was just the way it was run uh, mm. and the way it was put together. Sadly, went wrong, mm. um, and they sort of run out of money and all sorts. But it, yeah, it nearly made it. And I think, it, you know, it certainly wasn't Formula One. It was not no. the same level as Formula One, and it wasn't trying to be Formula One. But it was a really good different level for people to enjoy and have that, that national basis. And a bit like, you know, we've all been watching Olympics recently and you get excited mm. about your nation, whatever that nation is, or maybe you've got another nation that you're connected to in some mm. way and you get all excited when they're doing well. And A1GP was like that. So it could bring in fans who perhaps didn't know so much about motorsport, but had a nation to support and, mm. and, and it worked really well. So going back to uh, when you first started off with Formula One, what was your first race? Do you have any particular memories about that very first race you commentated on in, in F1? Uh, well, it was Brazil in 1995. Um, I don't have you know, particular memories, I suppose, about the particular race, but mm. I, the experience, you know, getting on a plane from Heathrow, um, getting into a commentary box in Brazil, over the look, overlooking the track. And actually, there is one thing I do remember, yeah, uh, quite significantly from that one. I'm sure it was that first year. Um, I was with John Watson in the commentary box and we had a very basic setup in those days, just a mm. couple of monitors and microphones, headphones, um, no producers with us or anything. We just, we were just there on our own. Um, and the, the system sound system went wrong. So we could still get the monitors, but the microphones weren't working and we had a telephone in between us. So we ended up dialing Eurosport on the telephone and commentating on the uh, oh on, my God. On, on the on the race on a telephone, which was pretty bizarre. So yeah, that, that <laughs> I did remember. God, I can't imagine what that would have been like. I'm trying to remember back to that race now, the nine ninety five. So who won? Who won that race? I can't remember. No, I'd have to look it up actually. Yeah, I don't yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't have the sort of. I don't have that kind of. A friend of mine has that memory. Uh, just he remembers everything about every yeah. race. You know, yeah. I don't have that. I research for every one and mm. I make sure I'm on top of the situation. But then I let go of it and sort of move on to the next yeah. one. I can't. You know, you, otherwise you overfill your brain. Yeah, and t tell me about that process as a commentator because people like yourself and and other commentators make it look so easy. But as you just sort of alluded to there, so much research goes into it, so much planning beforehand. Um, how much? preparation time would you put into before a race and, and all of yeah, that? Yeah, I do quite a lot of preparation time. Mm. Um, I mean, you, there are other people producing some statistics and stuff, but I like to, I like to put it all together in my way that I mm. read in my format. And we all have, in the, as you say, every commentator has a different way of doing it. Um, I tend to I tend to produce a, 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 a series of papers I and mean, I print it up on a file, you know, into a kind of file thing mm. um, and put it all together so that I can flick through it. Because if it's on computer, um, sometimes you have a problem in the middle of a race, you know, mm. the computer freezes or something like that. And I just never want to be in that position. No. Um, but also in doing the notes, I don't actually have to refer to them too much because it's a bit like swatting up for an exam. You know, yeah. you, you load up the notes um, into your head to a certain extent by writing them or printing them up. Mm. And then hopefully a lot of it's in your head, but you still got it there when you need to look at something that's a bit, mm. you know, off the wall. Um, hopefully yeah. regarding it <laughs> so obviously you've been in covering f1 for many seasons what has been the most standout moment for you um obviously you know murray walker said 96 when damon won the championship was a big moment for him in commentary obviously jake and i we both think the duel in the desert in 2014 with hamilton and rosberg very critical moment in formula one what has been your standout moment uh, yeah, I mean, at the standout races, standout moments. Um, I was also commentating on Damon when he won that championship for Eurosport, funnily enough. Mm. And that was a big moment because it was, you know, I didn't have the connection to him that Murray had, but it was, you know, a British winner of the world championship and it had been a, a big story. So that was a big one. I think, um, actually, funnily enough, the end of the first year with BBC, um, the 2012 season, that season finale, it wasn't quite up to the level of the Hamilton winning uh, championship you know in 2008 but it but it was a fantastic race um, mm. with the Vettel Alonso mix and mm. Vettel getting spun out on the first lap Alonso mm. looking as though he was on to win the title and, and and there was this 
you know, how damaged is Vettel's car? And it was a bit of damage. And surely that he can't come back. Yes, he did come back. Yeah. Um, and that season had been a really strong season as well, right from the start with so many different winners in the first part of the season. Mm. Um, so ironically, one of the best seasons I did was the very first season for BBC. And I have to say, you know, this season is also proved to be fantastic. And it's the one I've only done a few races because I, I, I have stood in uh, on Radio 5. I've stood in on Channel 4 this this year. So I've done some. Um, but yeah, this is obviously turning into one of those seasons as well. Whether it will end up with a, a, a you know, a finale like that, we'll have to wait and see. We certainly hope so. I mean, we'll, we'll touch on sort of this season to, towards the end, but because um, it, it is an enthralling one again um, with this rivalry going on. But how do you how do you currently find the state of, of F1? We've seen kind of sort of this transition from Bernie Eccleston era in the last decade to where we are now with Liberty Media and Chase Carey and, and Ross Braun, Stefano, Stefano Domenicali um, taking things in a very different direction. We've got the W Series being brought in a lot now um, and kind of uh, Hamilton's work as well. Do you think we're going in the right direction? Has it been calling out for this kind of new energy for a while? I think so. I think, you know, I mean, I, Bernie's, Bernie Eccleston, you know, a lot of people have different feelings. I actually have huge respect for what he achieved mm. with Formula One mm. um, in the 70s and 80s uh, and the 90s. You know, he, he, he set it up as one of the, the big international sports mm. um, of the time and did TV, you know, his work with TV was brilliant and it, and it set the pace for many different sports in TV. But I do think, I do think it needed to then move on. Mm. I think when Bernie, you know, okay, he was kind of ousted in the end. I think it needed to move on because social media, for example, has become such a big deal. Mm. And I do think that under the current ownership, they're doing a far bigger job of, of social media. Mm. And I think you have to engage in that. I think they've also, worked hard to come up with rules that might work as a sport, not necessarily mm. for the teams as such, but, you know, to make it into a sport that everybody can enjoy. Um, whether all those, you know, things are going to work or not, still a question mark, but mm. I do like their approach. I like the fact that they're experimenting with things, that they're looking at coming up with cars that will be easier to overtake each other, mm. even though that's demanding and, it, and sure that some things won't work out as perfectly as planned. But I do think it needed that step on. And I do think, I feel so far it's been done well. And obviously with a more dr drive to electric vehicles, obviously Formula E now becoming quite a big franchise itself. Um, do you feel Formula One has a dilemma of the series moving away from fuel-based? Um, obviously they want to get more um, energy efficient stuff within Formula One. Do you feel that, you know, the hybrid era could be maybe the final big era of Formula One before we head to electric? I honestly don't know. And I think, I don't think the world knows yet. I think, um, you know, the world isn't ready to go fully electric yet. And, and Formula One isn't ready yet because, you, you know, there isn't the duration um, and power in electric to produce your Grand Prix yet, you know, fully electric car in the terms of the race distance and speeds that we have now. So clearly there's going to be a lot of technical advance over the next you know, couple of decades. And I don't think we can predict that hugely because so much of it is a, is so important for climate change. And yes, it's got to be addressed. I think Formula One has to stick with hybrid for now, but become ever more efficient. And the fact that their engines, their internal combustion engines are now at an efficiency level that was never kind of imagined um, is certainly a few decades ago, you know, the level they've got them to. They're also going into, you know, fuels which are going to be um, environmentally friendly over the next few years, which I think is is a key issue as well. Um, so it's very much on their mind, but I think I think we're going to have to to watch. And it's not just Formula One that we're watching from that side. You know, it's the whole world of cars and transport is going to change over the next couple of decades. And I don't think all of us have a clear plan because I think there's still a lot of work in the world of science and research mm. in trying to develop the plans. And with series like Formula E, and we've seen Extreme E coming as a very new series now, um, sort of climate conscious series, if you like. Um, I, I feel like me personally, is it, Formula One has such a, a legacy and a reputation that is what obviously attracts us to it every every weekend to watch. How how hard do you think it will be for these new series to try and you know garner up the same reputation and, and get people to try and obviously watch that series and uh, a bit more than they do now? 
It's interesting because I, you know, having worked in different championships as I have, what what does strike you, uh, a bit like when we were talking about A1GP earlier, mm. Formula One is at such a level. And to be fair, Bernie Eccleston, as I say, was one of the reasons for that because mm. uh, he was quite hard on other championships. He would push them down. Uh, I, I don't think the current organisers of Formula One will do that in the same way, but they will keep ramping it up. So it's a slightly different approach. Mm. But I do think it's hard for other championships to come in and try and develop anything like the support um, that Formula One has. Formula One is exceptional in that regard. It is the peak of the sport. It's a big jump down then to whatever you do next, I think, is it's very hard to, to close that gap. And I've seen it in A1GP. I've seen it in all sorts of forms. And now we're seeing it to a certain extent in Formula E, as you say. Mm. Extremely is a very different thing. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure it will get support, but it's, again, it, it, it I think Formula One is at a level that's very hard to, to compete with. You know, even IndyCar in the States, which is a great championship, very exciting, um, but has nothing like the interest levels that Formula One has. So looking into next season, obviously we've got a brand new set of rules in Formula One. Uh, obviously, they're supposed to be brought in this year, but COVID has delayed that a little. Um, there's been serious thought and considerations for making it racing closer and easier to overtake. Budget caps... Um, and obviously the last time we had major rule changes back in 2014, when we jumped into hybrid, there was, you know, no one really thought there were going to be one team that would run away with it. Like Mercedes ended up doing. Do you see potentially a similar thing where one team might just sneak it and end up having an amazing car next year? again? That is always the potential on new rules. I mean, I've seen that before, you know, with new rules that you, you come in um, and for some reason you've just ticked every box. And actually, funnily enough, I've, I've just, it hasn't come out yet, but I, I wrote the other day a piece for GP Racing magazine uh, uh, talking about the new rules which will come out in a, in a couple of weeks' time and talking to a couple of technical directors of Formula One. But it's interesting. These new rules are incredibly defined in that, mm. you know, there's this really kind of thick book of rules that you've got to stick to. And yet... Even within that, they are feeling there are little ways that, 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 that some teams might find advantages and find, you know, the way to go about it. So it's very interesting because it is very restricted, much more restricted than Formula One used to be, where you could be intuitive as an engineer. Much less opportunity now, but there are still some grey areas from what I've learned. And so, yes, I think there is a chance that one or two teams could come out with a real advantage. I think what then what we hope for is what usually happens is the other teams soon pick up on what they've done mm. and yeah. within a year or two they've copied that bit that they hadn't done mm. and then we've got everybody together and then if that works with this current plan of cars being able to follow each other much more closely I think then hopefully a couple of years down the line we really will have a very exciting Formula One set up mm. whereby mid uh, field teams that we know now occasionally get the odd podium but it's pretty rare mm. um will regularly get podiums and more often we'll see an Ocon in an alpine win <laughs> in hungary i mean that was you know exceptional and it yeah. was due to shunts and crashes i think that might happen more as even with a full grid of cars which would be wonderful to see and i think in mine and chris's lifetime we've probably seen you've probably seen a lot more rule changes of course but um we've probably seen about three or four different probably about three different rule changes maybe four um and i think what's different about these rule changes is particularly as well is because of the not just the builds of the cars but it's also the fact that they're bringing in the wind tunnel um restrictions yeah. so teams like williams at the moment for example would get the most wind tunnel time and mercedes would get the least and um you know but um budget caps as well and all this thing do do you see that as, a, as another positive step and do you think that's sort of something that's been so revolutionary we've never had before really is it i think the budget cap is a big deal yeah um i think that is a big deal and i think that will make a difference i think it's a positive i think it, you know it gets a bit crazy the money that gets spent sometimes and i think hopefully that will bring the teams together a, a little bit more so I, I do like that idea policing it i'm sure is not going to be easy uh, <laughs> that's always going to be a bit of an issue um but yeah i do think that has that has a factor it's odd when you 
you know, seeing things like Ferrari talking the other day about, well, if there's a crash, you know, we've got a budget cap, then yeah. we're going to have to charge the other competitor. I, I do hope they don't go down that route. Mm. Um, that is a very strange route to go down in racing. But suddenly they are. I mean, I was talking to one of these technical directors the other day. He was saying that that that, that has changed the whole concept now is that if you're in, you know, as it was, if you found, if one of your engineers found something that they thought, well, we could gain an advantage here, mm. um, you would let them go down a route, spend money, um, they had the money available, they would research it, research it, and it might work, it might not. Now, when you get an engineer who comes up with an idea, there will be an accountant next to them, effectively, <laughs> saying, well, if you think this will work, what are the opportunities, you know, what are the chances? We have to we have to apply this budget. If I give you some budget to research this and I can't give a budget to the other engineer in the other department to research what he's doing. And that, that I, I do think suddenly accountants are going to become a major part of Formula One teams, much <laughs> a much bigger part than they have been. Of course, we won't know that from the outside, but mm. it will be a key part. Uh, how you spend your money and where you decide to go with it is going to be much more critical than it has been in, in previous times. And obviously Mercedes have ploughed a lot of money into the turbo hybrid era because obviously yeah. they're, you know they're champions but i feel like we hear about you know german efficiency um will will the next era of formula one more be about the efficiency and the resource of teams and how well they use it rather than kind of how much money we're just going to throw it because i guess we are living in this new climate change era where we are trying to use things for as long as possible sure no i think you're right efficiency efficiency financial efficiency is a new element of Formula One now. It hasn't been there. So uh, they've had in the past, especially the big teams, have had all the money, that, if not all the money. I mean, they've always said, oh, we haven't got enough. But basically, they've always had a lot of money to throw at things. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And having spoken to technical directors, they, they agree. The mm -hmm. financial efficiency is a new department, if you like, of Formula One that going forward is going to make a difference between winning teams and losing teams. So financial efficiency, big, big story. But of course, it's a funny story to sell, isn't it? You know, yeah. if we're spectators at home, do we really care, <laughs> you know, about financial efficiency? But back at base in the, in the factory, that's going to be crucial. Yeah. Obviously, you know, you briefly touched on it uh, that you've deputized a couple of times for Five Live, um, which is how I mainly listen to uh, the Grand Prix at the minute and obviously Channel 4. What decided to get you to step back from commentating? Because you were a full-time commenter for Ch Channel 4 for the past few years. So really it's because it, it. I love commentating and I'm still doing bits and pieces of it. Um, but being doing the whole Formula 1 uh, sort of season, year in, year out, um, I, I'm very happy that I did it. It was something I dreamed of doing. And I thought I'd lost the dream at one time. I thought it was never going to happen that I would do Formula 1. Uh, then it came back when the BBC offered me the, the role. So it was a huge thing for me and it meant a, a massive amount. But it also takes over your life, um, which is fine. It Formula One takes over everyone's life. You know, whatever role you're in in Formula One, um, from a team point of view, from an engineering point of view, from a logistics point of view, it takes over your life. There's no, no problem. And of course, if for a long time, you're happy to, 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 for it to take over your life. But... I want my life back as well. So it's part, it's really that, that I want to um, enjoy my life as it is um, and have time to do other things while still keeping an eye on Formula One. I'm still doing a bit of writing. I'm happy to stand in occasionally um, for the guys if they need some help, which is, you know, it's worked well for me this year. Um, so that, that, that has been, a, that's been good. It's just the, it was time I felt for me to step out of the sort of, mm. Circus Formula One, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just give us an idea of that commitment as well, because um, it might vary for drivers and teams and, and media sure. as well. But kind of, you know, um, we see drivers only get a few weeks in the year to have time off. Is it essentially the same thing? Um, yeah, I mean, I think when you're a driver, you're like a sports person, uh, it is your world, and mm. and so therefore, if anything, actually, it's easier for them now than it was at one time. There, there are more races, but there's less testing than there used to be. Yeah. Uh, when there was more testing allowed, that was intense as well. You know, and they were in testing during the week. Then they were racing at weekends. So it's changed. There's much less testing, but there are more races. Um, I think the more races has definitely affected things a little bit for, for people, including me, um, in the, the commitment of that number of races traveling the world um, it takes it out of you it takes it out of you there's no doubt it, it, it you know it, and it takes longer to recover from it all um 
I think as a as an athlete, as a racing driver, that's not a big big issue really mm. because you're training all the time for that. But when you're working in normal life and you're dealing with that, uh, that is a slightly different story. Um, obviously, you touched on it this season. It's probably been one of the greatest seasons, like you say, since 2012. You know, we've got a big rivalry, Max and Lewis, big rivalry, Mercedes, Red Bull, you know, something we've not really seen too much in the hybrid era of two teams battling for the uh, constructors. And obviously a revival of McLaren as well. Uh, you know, Lando constantly getting into the points up until last race in Hungary. Um, I mean, what's what's your feeling of how the season's going and do you, who do you think is going to win? Oh, wow, yes, yeah, so that's a big question. I don't think any of us know who's going to win. Um, no, it's a fascinating, really fascinating season. And you're absolutely right. There's so much going on because you've got this Max versus Lewis up front, really two brilliant drivers, absolutely on the limit. You know, that... I know the first lap at Silverstone ended badly, but watching them before they got to that point, the wheel-to-wheel action between them, the commitment from both, the absolute, and of course the commitment from both in, when it went wrong. Um, I admire it hugely. I admire their commitment, both of them. Um, and watching that battle go on through this season is going to be fascinating. The fact that you've got two really top drivers in two very equal cars in many ways. If anything, Red Bull have the advantage sometimes, Mercedes mm. have the advantage elsewhere, but it is brilliant. And I have to say, I think it is one of the, you know, it's going to go down in history as one of the classic seasons, which is fantastic. But there is more to it than that. You've got, as you say, McLaren, Lando doing an outstanding job. I really am impressed with what Lando Norris has done this year. You've got Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz and Ferrari, a really strong combination. And Ferrari, thankfully, have, you know, they had such a miserable 2020 season definitely doing better and he nearly won at the British Grand Prix you know it wasn't far off um science getting a podium okay Vettel got thrown out in Hungary but they are Ferrari are coming back which Formula One needs Formula One needs Ferrari to be somewhere up there it's not good for the sport if they're not somewhere up there and that and I do think they're a very interesting driver lineup and then you've got you know some other fascinating battles going on or or drivers you know Alonso what he did in Hungary in Mm. terms of fending off Lewis you really get the feeling that Alonso is back in the game. I feel it took him a little while to get there back back in the game. Um, we've seen Daniel Ricciardo, which is a mystery to me that he's still struggling uh, <laughs> to get back in the game at McLaren. Um, and then you've got drivers like you know Pierre Gasly, for example, having a really really strong season um, and really going well at the moment. And and. You know, I'm so pleased for him for what he's achieving mm. when he went through such a tough time at Red Bull. Mm. But he's actually doing a fantastic job at Alpha Tauri. And of course, it's a personal tragedy as well with Pierre Gasly, how he's been able to like bounce yeah. back from that. And I read a personal letter that he wrote in a sort of a, um, underground magazine, if you like, but for Formula One and sports. And he accounted that that moment and that it's not just all what we see on the surface with Red Bull and the, you know, the second curse of the second Red Bull seat and and that kind of thing. So it's been lovely to see that journey for him. Um, oh. And, and you, you were touching on the sort of driver lineups there. I mean, I don't know if you have any inside info, well, probably as much as we do, but um, where do you see kind of the, the grid looking like next year? Obviously, there's a lot of interest on George Russell, where he's going, yeah, but a couple others yeah. as well. Yeah, no, it'd be lovely to have inside info, but I don't think there's anybody who's got that at the moment. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I really want to see Russell in a top car, you know, and I, I have to say to see Russell alongside Lewis would be amazing. I think that would be a fascinating mix. I do think Valtteri Bottas does a good job, but I feel that it's time for a change as much as anything. Um, and under the new rules, what a perfect time to bring in a youngster who will adapt incredibly quickly. So I would love to see Russell make that move. I have to say, um, yeah, I'd love to see him in a top team. And I think Lando with McLaren obviously has got a long-term contract. Charles at Ferrari has got a long-term contract. Mm. There are some young guys there with really well set into teams that are driving strongly forward. And under these new rules could well, you know, you look at Ferrari, for example, big, you know, big budgets, mm. huge amount of ambition to get back to where they want to be. Um, Charles Leclerc is a brilliant driver and Carlos Sainz is a fantastic backup. So, I think there's some fascinating potentials for next year. And as you say, I think the George Russell question is the biggest one. And, and hopefully we're going to find out soon. I mean, in theory, we should find out pretty soon. Hopefully we will. And uh, finally, I know you don't want to make this decision, but if you had to choose, who would you choose for this season? Okay. Um, I, I'm not surprised that Verstappen is doing so well. I think 
I think that Red Bull have actually got the edge on terms of car because of the rules change. And as we go forward, I think that they will have an advantage. On the other hand, I think I'm going to, I think I'm just going to swing towards Lewis because he has a mindset now of knowing how to win a championship over a long period yeah. and having a control element to him that I think he's developed, you know, he perhaps to maturity that a driver only gets later in life. Mm. That might work for him. I'm not sure it will uh, because I think Max is brilliant and, and he's got the car that works for him at the moment. So it, honestly, it's so hard to tell, but I guess if I have to make a decision, I'm probably going to tip towards Lewis. Yeah, <laughs> I guess only time will tell. Um, ben Edwards, thanks so much for joining us on Around the Outside. It's been, uh, been really great to chat to you. Thank you. Great to speak to Ben Edwards there, much of a hero for me and Chris uh, growing up and, and watching him on, on BBC and Channel 4 and and hearing his commentary of certain races. We, we touched on the whole Bahrain race there with Lewis and, and Nico, um, which was such a great moment there. But you know, talking about how his career has spanned across so many different series and um, his insight into Formula 1 at the moment as well. Really interesting uh, to hear all of that and, and see what he thinks and, and what the future would be like for Formula 1 as well. Yeah, it's it's great to look back on and you know we talking about all sorts of things. You know, we're talking about his very first race being the nineteen ninety five Brazilian Grand Prix. Um, mm. You know, looking back at his favorite moments as well, and you know, interesting that you know he was saying that that season they had to ring Eurosport to commentate a race. I mean, that is something you just would <laughs> never think of um, no. happening, especially in this day and age. Um, but I, I did just look up as well um, the winner of his first ever F1 commentary race and I had a feeling it could have been this driver and it is it's Michael Schumacher in the Benetton there we go probably set the, the set the scene for a lot of the races that he commentated on in his career um, big thanks to Ben Edwards for coming on here uh, around the outside really appreciated his time here on the podcast um, well that's it for this week's episode thanks so much for listening um, we'll be back next time uh, with another episode before we get to the Belgian Grand Prix um, you can listen back to all of our episodes that we've recorded over this season um, just head on over to your favourite podcast provider and all the episodes are still there for you to enjoy but for now it's been me Jake Peach and it's me Chris Moss thanks so much for listening we'll talk to you soon take care